Few people realize the source from which proceeds the bitterness, the opposition made against the cruel treatment meted out to many of the ministers of the gospel. As the representatives of the Holy One, they are a thorn in the side of the ungodly, though they do them no harm, but instead desire and seek their highest good, yet they are detested by those who want to be left alone in their sins. Nothing recorded in human history more plainly and fearfully displays the depravity of fallen man and his alienation from God than his behavior toward the most faithful of his servants, supremely manifested when the Lord of glory took upon him the form of a servant and tabernacled among men. It was just because he made known and revealed the character of God as none else ever did that man's hatred of and enmity against him was so inveterately and fiercely exhibited. But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. Second Kings 6.32 This verse also needs to be pondered in the light of other scriptures. For example, Whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Proverbs 1.33 The one who truly fears the Lord fears not man, and his heart is preserved from those trepidations which so much disturb the rest and so often torment the wicked. No, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings, he shall neither have alarming anticipations of such, nor be dismayed when they actually arrive. And why not? Because his heart is fixed Trusting in the Lord. Psalm 112, 7 Rumors do not shake him, nor does he quake when they are authenticated, for he is assured that his times are in the hand of the Lord. Psalm 31, 15 And therefore is he kept in peace. In the light of all that is recorded of him, who can doubt that Elisha and his companions had been on their knees before the throne of grace and now calmly awaited events? That is the holy privilege of the saints in seasons of acutest stress and distress, to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 37, 7 And the king sent a messenger before him, this man was dispatched post-haste ahead of Jehoram, either to announce his awful decision or to put it into actual execution. Had the king paused to reflect, he should have realized that it was one thing to form such a determination, but quite another to carry it out. Had not been Hadad only a short time previously, sent a great host, not only of footmen, but of horses and chariots, against this servant of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 14, only for them to discover their impotency against him. 
But when a soul or a people is abandoned of the Lord, he is given up to a spirit of madness, so that not only does God have no place in his thoughts, but he is no longer capable of acting rationally. Rationality and spirituality are closely connected. But ere the messenger came to him, he, Elisha, said to the elders, See ye how this son of a murderer hath sent to take away mine head? Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? Verse 32 And while he yet talked with him, Behold, the messenger came down to him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What shall I wait for the Lord any longer? Verse 33 We confess we do not find it easy to ascertain the precise force of this verse, not even its grammatical meaning. The first sentence is clear, for the while he yet talked, evidently refers to what Elisha was saying to the elders. The difficulty is to discover the antecedent of the and he said. The nearest is the him or Elisha. Yet certainly he would not say the proposed murder of himself. This evil was of the Lord, ordered by him. The next is the messenger. But the prophet had given definite orders that he was not to be admitted, nor would this agree with what follows in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. We therefore regard the second sentence as recording the words of the king himself, who had followed immediately on the heels of his messenger. Thus, the more remote but principal antecedent of verses 30 and 31, just as we understood the man whom ye see as meaning Jehoram rather than Elisha. Verse 19. But what did the king signify by this evil is of the Lord? We certainly do not concur with Matthew Henry and Scott that he referred to the siege and famine, for not only is the grammar of the passage against such a view, but it is in direct opposition to everything else which is recorded of this son of Jezebel. He did not believe in Jehovah at all, and therefore his language must be regarded as that of derision and blasphemy. The context shows he was in a towering rage, that he regarded Elisha as being in some way responsible for the present calamity, and that he was determined to put a sudden end to his life. Fully intending to execute his murderous design, he now burst in on the prophet and said, This evil is of the Lord. Those were the words of contemptuous mockery. You profess to be a servant of an all-powerful Jehovah. Let's see what he can do for you now. Behold me as his executioner, if you please. 
What shall I wait for the Lord any longer? Jehovah has no place in my thoughts or plan. The situation is hopeless, so I shall waste no more time but slay you and surrender to Ben-Hadad and take my chance. Then Elisha said, The then looks back to all that has been before us in the last ten verses of Second Kings 6. Then, when all the hosts of Syria were besieging Samaria, then, when there was a great famine and things had come to such an extreme pass that the people were paying immense prices for the vilest of offals, and mothers were consuming their own infants, then, when the king of Israel had sworn that the prophet should be beheaded this very day, then, when the king in a white heat of passion entered Elisha's abode to carry out his murderous intention, then what? The prophet gave way to abject despair and broke forth in bitter lamentations of murmuring rebellion? No, indeed. Then what? Elisha flung himself at the king's feet and pleaded with him to spare his life. Very far from it, such is not the way the ambassadors of the king of kings conduct themselves in a crisis. Instead, then Elisha said, calmly and quietly, Hear ye the word of the Lord. To what import? That his patience is exhausted, that he will now pour out his wrath and utterly consume you? No, the very reverse the last thing they could have expected him to say. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for as little as a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. 7.1 this brings us, third, to the announcement of the amazing miracle which was about to be wrought. In view of the next verse, it is quite clear that the prophet addressed himself to the king and those who had accompanied him. It was as though he said, I have listened to the derisive and insulting words which you have spoken of my master. Now hear ye that he has to say. And what was his message on this occasion? This, he is about to have mercy upon your kingdom. He is on the point of working a miracle within the next 24 hours, which will entirely reverse the present situation, so that not only will the Syrians depart, but there shall be provided an abundant supply of food which will fully meet the needs of your people and that without a blow being struck or your royal coffers being any the poorer. Admire here the remarkable faith of Elisha. Then, when things were at the lowest possible end, when the situation was desperate beyond words, when the outlook appeared to be utterly hopeless, Mark the implicit confidence of the prophet in that dark hour. 
He had received a message of good tidings from his master, and he hesitated not to announce it. Ah, but put yourself in his place, my hearer, and remember that he was a man of like passions with us, and therefore liable to be cast down by an evil heart of unbelief. It is a great mistake for us to look upon the prophets as superhuman characters. In this case, as in all parallel ones, God was pleased to place his treasure in an earthen vessel that the glory might be his. Elijah was just as liable to the attacks of Satan as we are. For all we know to the contrary and reasoning from the law of analogy, it is quite likely that the enemy of souls came to him at that time with his evil suggestions and said, May you not be mistaken in concluding that you have received such a word as this from the Lord? Nay, you are mistaken. Your own wish is father to the thought. You are deluded into imagining that such a thing can be. Those who are experimentally acquainted with the conflict between faith and unbelief, who are frequently made to cry out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, will have little difficulty in following us in what has just been said. They who know something from first-hand acquaintance of the tactics of the devil and the methods of his assaults will not deem our remarks as far-fetched. Rather, will they concur that it is more than likely Elisha was hotly assailed by the adversary at this very time. Would he not pose, too, as an angel of light and preach a little sermon to the prophet, saying, A holy God is now acting in judgment, righteously scourging the idolatrous Jehoram and Therefore, you must certainly be mistaken in supposing he is about to act in a way of mercy. At any rate, exercise prudence. Wait a while longer, lest you make a fool of yourself. It would be cruel to raise false hopes in the starving people. But if so, Elisha heeded him not, but being strong in faith, he gave glory to God. It was just such cases as this that the Apostle had in mind when he mentioned the faith of the prophets in Hebrews 11.32. Ah, my hero, Elisha was assured that what he had received was the word of him that cannot lie, and no matter how much opposed it was to common sense and to all outward appearances, he firmly took his stand upon it. The faith of God's elect, Titus 1.1, is no fiction but a glorious reality. It is something more than a beautiful ideal to talk about and sing of. It is a divine gift, a supernatural principle, which not only overcomes the world, but survives the fiery trial yea, issues therefrom refined. Elisha was not put to confusion. 
That divine word, though perhaps quite unexpected and contrary to his own anticipations, was faithfully and literally fulfilled. And remember that this is recorded for our learning and consolation. We too have in our hands the word of truth, but do we have it in our hearts? Are we really relying upon its promises, no matter how unlikely their accomplishment may seem to carnal reason? If so, we are resting upon a sure foundation, and we too shall have our faith vindicated, and God will be glorified through and by us. But let us look higher now than Elisha's faith and that divine word to the one who gave it to him. It was the Lord manifesting himself as the God of all grace to those who were utterly unworthy. In their dire extremity, the Lord had mercy upon them and remembered they were the seed of Abraham, and therefore he would not entirely destroy them. He turned an eye of pity on the starving city and promised them speedy relief from the awful famine. How truly wonderful is his mercy! He was saying, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboam? Mine heart is turned within me, my repentings are kindled together. Hosea 11.8 But that mercy rested on a righteous basis. There was a handful of salt in Samaria which preserved it from destruction. The prophet and the elders. Rightly was Elisha styled by a later king, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. 2 Kings 13, 14, for his presence in their midst was a better defense than a multitude of infantry and cavalry, as a queen feared the prayers of knots far more than any arm of flesh. And may not what has just been pointed out provide a ray of hope for us in this, spiritually speaking, dark night? Of old, Israel was reminded, For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? Deuteronomy 4.7 Has not that been true of Britain in the past four centuries as of no other people? God has shown us favors granted us privileges such as no other nation in the world has enjoyed. And we, like Israel of old, have evilly requited him and abused his great benefits. For years past his judgments have been upon us, and like Israel again, we have sadly failed to bow to his rod and turn from our sins. And now we are passing through the greatest crisis of our history and our people are still impenitent. But thank God we have a king and queen who are radically different from Jehoram and his mother Jezebel. If God was so reluctant to abandon Israel, may he not continue to show us mercy and 
for the sake of the little salt still left in our midst, spare us from destruction. Time will tell, but we are not left without hope. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be. 2 Kings 7.2 Here was the response that was made to Jehovah's word through his prophet. Instead of being received with thanksgiving and tears of gratitude, it met with a contemptuous sneer. The courtier's language expressed the skepticism of carnal reason. Unbelief dared to question the divine promise, illustrative of the unregenerate rejection of the gospel. This man argued from what he could see. As no possible relief was visible, he scorned its probability, or rather certainty. And he, Elisha, said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. Verse 2. Let it be noted that the prophet wasted no breath in reasoning with this skeptic. It is not only useless, but most unbecoming for a servant of the Lord to descend to the level of such objectors. Instead, he simply affirmed that this man should witness the miracle, but be unable to share in its benefits. God himself will yet answer the skeptics of this age as he did that one with condign judgment. Such will be the doom of unbelievers. They shall see the redeemed feasted at the marriage supper of the Lamb, yet not partake thereof. Matthew 8, 11 and 12 Chapter 25 15th Miracle for the benefit of new hearers and also to refresh the memories of old ones, we will briefly review our last two chapters upon this miracle. First we emphasized its reality, seeking to show it was indeed a miracle which took place and that it might justly be regarded as connected with our prophet. Second, we dwelt upon its occasion, which was the fearful shortage of food in the city of Samaria, resulting from its being so closely invested by the Syrians that none of its inhabitants could go forth and obtain fresh supplies. 2 Kings 6, 24 and 25 So acute did conditions become that the vilest of offals were sold at exorbitant prices and mothers had begun to consume their own babies. So far from humbling himself beneath the hand of divine judgment and acknowledging that it was his own idolatry and impenitence which was the procuring cause of reducing his kingdom to such sore straits, Israel's king turned an evil eye upon Elisha and determined to make a scapegoat of him, taking a horrible oath that he should be slain forthwith. Chapter 631 Evidencing that he was a true son of Jezebel. 1 Kings 18.4
But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. Second Kings 6.32 Quiet from fear of evil, he calmly awaited events. Announcing that this son of a murderer had sent to take away mine head, he gave orders that the door should be shut and the royal messenger be not admitted. Jehoram himself hastened on just behind. The prophet and the king then came face to face, and third, the former, announced the impending miracle. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold as cheaply as for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. 2 Kings 7, 1 That was tantamount to saying, God in His high sovereignty is going to show mercy on your wretched kingdom, and within a day will work a miracle that shall entirely reverse the present situation, so that not only will the Syrians depart, but there shall be provided an abundant supply of food which will fully meet the needs of your people, and that, without a blow being struck or your royal coffers being any the poorer, Then a lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Chapter 7, verse 2 Such a message of good news as the prophet had just proclaimed of deliverance from the enemy and food for the starving seemed utterly incredible to carnal reason, and therefore Instead of being received with fervent thanksgiving, it met with naught but a contemptuous sneer. Unbelief presumed to call into question the divine promise, arguing from what he could see, no possible relief being visible. This wicked Lord scorned the likelihood of its fulfillment. That which Elisha had announced was indeed impossible to anyone but the living God, for only by a miracle could it be made good. Yet it was the express word of him that cannot lie and who is endowed with omnipotence. Despite the effort of his unbelieving courtier to prevent any weakening of his resolution, The king of Israel decided to wait another day ere carrying out his murderous design, and during that interval the prediction was accomplished. We turn now to consider forth its heralds, or the ones made use of by the Lord to proclaim the wonder of mercy which he had wrought. Strange indeed do the divine methods often appear to our dim vision, yet in the light of Scripture their significance is not lost upon those favored with anointed eyes. It was not the elders of Israel who had sat with Elisha in his house, nor was it the sons of the prophets whom the Lord honored on this occasion. God is sovereign and employs whom he pleases. 
Often he acts as he does in order to stain the pride of man, for he is jealous of his own honor and will suffer no flesh to glory in his presence. It is true that he has called certain men to the special work of the ministry and set them apart thereto, and that he frequently works through them in the converting of his people. Yet he is by no means tied to that particular agency, and often manifests his independency by making use of the most unlikely ones to be his agents, as appears in the more extreme cases of Balaam and Judas. So it was here. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? 2 Kings 7.3 More unlikely instruments could scarcely be imagined. They were pariahs, outcasts, debarred from mingling with their ordinary fellows. They were lepers, and as such, excluded by the divine law. Leviticus 13.46 Yet these were the ones whom God was pleased to employ. How different are his thoughts and ways from man's. But let us observe the position which they occupied and the strange anomaly which that reveals. They were sitting at the entering in of the gate, that is, of Samaria, chapter 7, verses 1 and 3, namely, on the outside of the city's walls, as the next verse shows. There we have a striking sidelight on the inconsistency of perverse human nature, especially in connection with religious matters. Though an idolater and devoid of any respect for Jehovah, Yet Jehoram and his officers were punctilious in carrying out the requirement of the ceremonial law as it respected the exclusion of lepers. They were diligent in tithing mint and anise while omitting the weightier matters of the moral law. Matthew 23.23 That to which we have called attention is frequently exemplified on the pages of Holy Writ. Instead of utterly destroying Amalek and all his possessions as commanded when God delivered them into his hands, Saul permitted the people to spare the best of the sheep and oxen that they might offer them in sacrifice to the Lord, to whom Samuel declared, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. For Samuel 15.22 Because it was the eve of the Passover, the Jews besought Pilate that the bodies of Christ and the two thieves who had been crucified with him might be taken away, John 19.31, that their solemn feast might not be defiled. What a strange mixture human nature is! Those ceremonially unclean lepers must be shut out of Samaria, even though Jehovah himself was treated with the utmost contempt. 
And do we not see the same principle illustrated in Christendom? Let the papist attend early morning Mass, and he may spend the remainder of Sunday, in quotes, as he pleases. Being a stickler for a particular form of baptism, breaking bread each Lord's Day morning, or spending five days at a communion, is a mockery if we love not our neighbor as ourselves. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? It will probably surprise many to hear that some of our hearers have been taught that this is the proper attitude to assume when one has been convicted of his lost condition, appeal being made to such passages as, Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Proverbs 8.34 In those lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. John 5.3 The awakened sinner is told that he is utterly helpless to do anything for himself entirely dependent on God's sovereign pleasure, and that since there is a set time to favor Zion, Psalm 102.13, he must meekly wait for God's appointed hour of deliverance, should he deign to deliver him. But such counsel is an utter misuse of both the truth of God's sovereignty and of man's spiritual inability, and proof that it is so is found in the fact that it both clashes with the call of the gospel and is a repudiation of human responsibility. The truth is that the spiritual inability of the natural man is both a voluntary and a criminal one. He does not love and serve God because he hates him, he believes not the gospel because he prefers to cherish a lie. He will not come to the light because he loves darkness. So far from his, I cannot repent, I cannot believe, expressing an honest desire so to do. It is but an avowal of the heart's enmity against God. If the doctrine of the cross and the glorious message of the gospel contain nothing to overcome such enmity and attract the soul to Christ, it is not for us to invent another gospel and bend the scriptures to the inclination of man's depravity. It is we who must bend to the scriptures, and if we do not, it will be to our eternal undoing. The one who wrings his hands over his inability to believe and asks, What can I do? is not to be soothed by something other than the gospel of Christ or encouraged to suppose that he is willing to be saved in God's way. Yet that is the very delusion such souls cherish, imagining they are as willing to be saved from their sins as the impotent man by the pool was desirous of being made whole. 
Neither Christ nor any of his apostles ever told a convicted soul to passively wait for God's appointed hour of deliverance. Instead, he bade the heavy laden, Come unto me, and so far from informing those who followed him across the sea, it lies not in your power to do anything to secure the bread of life. He exhorted them to labor. For that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. John 6.27 Rather than tell men they must sit quietly before it, Christ commanded, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Luke 13.24 When his hearers were pricked in their hearts and asked, What shall we do? Instead of saying, You can do nothing except wait until God speaks peace unto you. Peter bade them repent. Acts 2, 37 and 38 Those who think they have been given a sense of their helplessness are quite content if some physician of no value will inspire them with a hope in the way they are now in and encourage them to expect that if they remain passive, God will release them by a moving of the waters. We do but miserably deceive souls if we give them any comfort or hold out any hope for them while they remain impenitent and away from Christ. It is recorded that the passengers of a ship off South America went ashore on a brief expedition, ascending one of the mountains. But ere they were aware, night came on and a very cold fog. They felt a strong inclination to sleep, but a medical man in their party remonstrated against any such indulgence, warning them that there would be the utmost danger of their never waking. As the one who chronicled this incident asked, What had been thought of his conduct if, instead of urging his companions to escape from the mount, he had indulged them in their wishes? The scriptures declare, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And surely we ought not to contradict that, either by directing to the use of means short of believing, or by encouraging those who use them to hope for a happy issue. Paul did not offer the jailer comfort on the ground of his being in great distress, but bade him believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The word to exercise souls is not sit still, but seek and you shall find, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. But to return to the narrative, they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say, We will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die therein. If we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come, and let us fall unto the hosts of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Second Kings 7, 4 
How are those poor lepers put to shame, the do-nothing fatalists? Those men rightly recognized the hopelessness of their case, perceiving that continued passivity would profit them nothing, and hence they decided to act. And if you, my hearer, are already convicted of your perishing condition, do not rest content with that conviction and persuade yourself that in due time God will save you, but embrace the gospel offer and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, for he has declared, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. We ask the indulgence of others who have not been infected with such paralyzing teaching, while we add a further word, yea, we would ask them to beg God to use the aforementioned to deliver some souls from this subtle snare of the devil. If one who reads or hears these lines has been made to feel his lost condition, then consider, we pray you, the far happier situation facing you from that in which those lepers were. They decided to come unto an enemy and cast themselves upon his mercy. While you are invited to betake yourself unto the friend of publicans and sinners, they had no invitation from the Syrians, but you have from the Lord. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. They had nothing better than an if they save us alive to venture upon, whereas you have. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. They were confronted with the possible alternative of being killed. Not so you. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Then why hesitate? And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians, And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. Verse 5. What was before us in verses 3 and 4 did not end in idle talk. The situation for those lepers was a desperate one, and prompted by a sense of urgency, they acted. Their sitting still had got them nowhere, so they rose up, and proceeded at once to their proposed objective. They did not puzzle their heads about God's secret decree and whether or not His ordained hour had arrived, for that was none of their business. Instead, they responded to the instinct of self-preservation. Again we say, how far superior is the sinner's case. He need not wait a moment for the prompting of any instinct, but is invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Luke 14.17 Come just as you are with all your sinfulness and unworthiness, and if you cannot come to Christ with a melted heart and faith, then come to Him as a desperate patient for them. The divine narrative breaks in upon the account of the heralds of this miracle to show us, fifth, its means. 
For before we see those lepers going forth to publish their good news, we are first informed how it was that they came to find the camp empty. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and the noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Verse 6 This is to be regarded as the sequel to chapter 6, 24. Ben-Hadad's purpose was to starve out Samaria. But man proposes, and God opposes and disposes. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. Psalm 33.10 The Lord accomplishes His purpose by a great variety of measures and methods sometimes employing the supernatural, more often using the natural. What were the means he used here? In the light of what is not said in verse 6, it seems strange that Thomas Scott should write, The infatuation which seized the minds of the whole Syrian army was equal to the illusion put upon their senses, and both were from the Lord but how produced we know not. Unquote. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions.
there is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.